Welcome to The World We Got This Podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. It's estimated that almost a third of the world's population live under authoritarian rule. And just last summer, the United Nations warned how many democratic gains of the last 30 years have been greatly reduced, and that three times as many countries now lean towards authoritarianism than towards democracy. But at the same time, we've seen people taking to the streets in large numbers to protest against decisions made by those in power, even in countries such as China, Russia and Iran, where the punishments for dissent can be extremely severe. We've also witnessed people all around the world coming together in huge numbers to share frustrations at the failure of those in power to tackle racial injustice, violence against women and climate change. So given these two very different trends of rising authoritarianism and large-scale social protest, what's going on? Are countries that control people through force losing their grip? Or will these regimes simply shrug off these protests or even use them as a justification for increasing control? My name's Julie Weldon, and in this episode, we're going to speak to academics here in the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London about these questions and more. We will hear from Dr. Maxim Alyokov, a postdoctoral fellow at King's Russia Institute, about how President Vladimir Putin uses information and propaganda to reinforce his power in Russia and the political apathy this can create among Russians. He will also share his thoughts on whether the war has affected Putin's authority. We will hear from Dr. Jane Hayward, a lecturer in China and Global Affairs at the Lao China Institute, about the recent public demonstrations in China, including whether they really did influence the decision to end harsh COVID rules and why seeing public protests through Western liberal eyes can lead to some wrong assumptions. And we will talk with Ahu Kuchasvahani, a PhD candidate in our War Studies Department, about the significance of thousands of people taking to the streets in Iran despite the huge dangers this entails. She will share her thoughts on the role social media is playing in empowering people against the state, and where she thinks the current protests could lead. So let's begin by looking at the different regimes that are the focus of this episode. Here is Ahu Kuchisfahani on Iran. The regime in Iran is a hybrid between, I would say, clerical authoritarianism and uh, Islamic theocracy. It's an authoritarian state with at its helm a supreme leader, who is, of course, Ali Khamenei, who rules with an iron fist and he oversees the whole power structure in Iran, all of the institutions, even the presidency. And no one can challenge him without facing very severe consequences. It's also theocracy in that he rules in the name of religion and Khamenei sees himself as directly linked to God. So he holds himself only responsible to God. And that is why no one can basically touch him. People have really no freedom. In China, there is just one party, the Communist Party, and no elections. So how much does the state control people's lives? 
Jane Haywood said, it very much depends on what group of society you are in and where you live. With residents in areas such as urban villages experiencing much more state control than those in more affluent places. So you have these sort of small enclaves, which are really small villages inside the city with often many, many, many thousands of migrant workers in them, far more than the, the local population. And these are areas of particular concern for the local state, local governments. And so these places tend to be very uh, under quite a lot of surveillance. This is certainly what we've seen in recent years. If you're a, a white collar worker in a, working for a local corporation, you're going to be treated quite differently. When it comes to Russia, Maxim says it's authoritarian, but not totalitarian. It does control political life. I think the defining feature of Putin's regime, as many other authoritarian regimes, is that it tries to control political life and it tries to avoid significantly interfering with private lives of people. So they are not trying to control your, you know, what you're doing at home, things like that. Russia has also been described as an electoral autocracy, reflecting how the current regime relies on elections Maxim describes as heavily rigged, or as an information autocracy because of its dependence on the manipulation of information, which he says the Kremlin does on a huge scale. It's hybrid and it's massive. It's also sort of different strokes for different folks. It's how Kremlin adapts their message uh, for different audiences. So for instance, the regime uses television to appeal to older and less internet literate audience. At the same time, news aggregators are used to shape attitudes of people who do not watch television and who are less attentive to online news, right? So they just check headlines referenced by a news aggregator. And then uh, for more active users, there's this Telegram ecosystem, pro-government Telegram channels are used to shape the use of those who are more active online and critical of television and slightly more critical of the government. So the Kremlin basically adapts the message for uh, different specific audiences. Despite high levels of state interference in or control of people's lives, all three countries have recently seen large and significant public protests. In Iran, as Ahu explains, they were sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masajina Amini, who was beaten while in morality police custody over allegedly wearing her hijab improperly. Her death sparked the largest and the longest nationwide protest in the near 44 year of the Islamic Republic's rule. And protests have, for the first time, spread across all 31 provinces across Iran. And they are going strong almost four months in. As well as the protests, there continues to be ongoing strikes across different sectors. So the petrochemical industry, the logistics industry, teachers unions, it goes on and on. She said there have been uprisings before. A student won in 1999 over the shutting down of reformist newspapers. In 2009 over the presidential election. In 2017 and 2019 over economic issues. This latter protest involved a brutal crackdown by the state with 1,500 people killed by security forces during a three-day nationwide internet shutdown. From this grew new collectives calling for justice for the victims. And these have had a role to play in the recent protests, as Ahu explains. So in 2019, after the bloody November, collectives started building up clandestinely and, most importantly, 
keeping their identities anonymous for their own safety. Um, these collectives operate online on social media and they were built to document and highlight the atrocities that happened throughout those three days of violent and brutal crackdown. And so this time around, they are vital for this movement again, because they are documenting the situation and narrating the stories of those people whose voices have been silenced, either because they've been arrested or because they've been killed. And so these collectives are very important today to keep up the momentum because the fact that they operate on social media allows them to share the stories of the atrocities committed by the Islamic Republic to a wider audience. There are some clear differences, though, between these latest protests and those of the past. This time around, what is so striking to see is how women and men are fighting together. So men are standing shoulder to shoulder alongside women, demanding an end to the tyranny and the brutality of the Islamic Republic. And this obviously marks a huge turning point in Iranian society. When we say it's a feminist revolution, it is because men see women's struggles and are fighting for women's struggles at the same time as women are. But then, of course, in addition to that, this time around has also seen members of the LGBTQ plus community being present in protests. And it's even more dangerous to openly be a member of the LGBTQ community. So despite the grave dangers that they face, they have also been present by taking a picture of themselves holding the pride flag or the trans flag in public, which is, again, a very, very dangerous point for the individuals who are doing this. They are extremely brave and courageous. What is, again, different this time around is seeing the unity among all Iranians from all different minorities. Everybody is on the streets. China has also seen protests across the country, all in some way related to lockdowns imposed to control COVID. Jane said localised protests are not that unusual in China, but nationwide ones such as those seen in November last year are rare. We saw major protests actually just before the main set of protests broke out in a Foxconn factory, which were about the horrendous working conditions under COVID. These workers were in a closed loop system, which was highly, highly oppressive and really denied them any freedom of way of life at all. At the same time, we saw protests in Urumqi in Xinjiang, mainly Uyghurs or perhaps all Uyghurs people of the ethnic Uyghur group had been apparently locked into their buildings uh, and literally locked in in the sense that they weren't able to leave their apartments. And there was a fire in the building and they were burned to death. And people were so absolutely horrified by this that, that there were major protests there as well. Now, all of these are anti-lockdown protests in one way or another, different specific localised causes. So the widespread nature of these protests was one thing. The second thing was the sort of cross-ethnic solidarity that was shown. So, for example, there were lots of Han Chinese protesting because they were so horrified by what had happened to the Uyghurs. It's not clear that that sense of solidarity went beyond the concern about the Uyghurs in that particular fire and the extent to which they had been locked into their buildings. Now, there is all kinds of extremely heavy and quite brutal 
levels of policing in Xinjiang, which has been going on, I believe, since 2017, where many Uyghur people of the um, ethnic Uyghur group and some others, people who are Muslims in particular, so that includes other minorities, including the Hui minority and some others, have been subject to horrendously harsh policing practices. It doesn't seem that the solidarity expressed by the Han went as far as recognising that. So it was, again, quite limited in itself. But but the fact that there was some ethnic, cross-ethnic solidarity expressed was interesting and quite unusual. And the cross-class nature of it as well was really quite unusual. So we had, as I said, the workers in Foxconn, um, various migrant workers in urban villages protesting, as well as clearly quite affluent middle-class people protesting in places like Shanghai all at once. Now, that was extraordinary. We, it's so rare that we see that in China. I asked her how much these protests influenced the relaxing of COVID restrictions. Or was that already on the cards? Some scholars have said that they think that the COVID restrictions were about to end anyway. I don't think that's true because they didn't seem to have made any preparations for it. Only in October, around the time of that major national congress, they were still saying then they were going to stick with zero COVID. They then continued to do that afterwards because a lot of people thought after the congress they were going to release restrictions and then didn't. And a lot of people were quite horrified by that. And that may be one of the reasons for the real anger and dissatisfaction that exploded in November. If they were going to shift from zero COVID to a strategy that would lead to uh, herd immunity, which involves lots of vaccinating the elderly and the vulnerable, it would have been likely that we would have seen beforehand lots of public information campaigns encouraging the elderly to get vaccinated because there is quite a lot of vaccine resistance, including amongst the elderly population. Doesn't mean elderly people hadn't been vaccinated. Many had, but they weren't fully vaccinated. So they hadn't had all their vaccinations. So they weren't as protected as they could have been. I think it was because of the protests that they opened up. I think that was a hugely significant catalyst. Other people have said it was because the spread of Omicron was too fast, so the lockdowns weren't working anymore. I mean, I think yes, and I think that was partly what was behind the protests. But since they started to open up within days after the protests happening, I don't think it really stands to say that the protests aren't what caused it. She said the Chinese government uses protests to monitor public opinion, and it can result in changes. For example, environmental protests against polluting companies can be supported by local government officials. However, the latest protests were different. What is so extraordinary is that the zero COVID strategy, the zero COVID policy was so high profile and so very much associated with Xi Jinping right at the very top. It was almost Xi Jinping's flagship policy. And one of the reasons for that is because earlier on, it seemed to be more successful than what was going on in in the US and in uh, various European countries. And so it was one way of saying, look, authoritarian government works. So for such a high profile policy, so closely associated with Xi Jinping, to be reversed so quickly after a protest is really extraordinary. In Russia, there were significant protests when Putin ordered the invasion of Ukraine and again when further troops were required. Here's Maxim to explain. In the beginning of the invasion, anti-war protests were quite significant given the intensity of repression. So they were not very massive, 
but given the amount of resources state invested in dispersing them and comparing them to other previous projects in Russia, they were quite intensive because we were, uh, more than 10,000 people were detained in the first couple of weeks, and now it's about more than 20,000 people. So it's not a massive anti-war movement, but it's more than during any uh, previous protests in Russia. September protests after mobilization were quite different. There were quite different groups involved. So the same people who protested earlier in spring, they took to the streets because they saw it as an opportunity to protest again. And some people accused these protesters of being selfish. So in spring, they protested against the war. Now they protest against being drafted and for personal safety, basically. This is not exactly fair because it's likely that a significant group of people who protested in fall were the same people who protested in spring. Uh, If you are sure that other people will join the protest, it's easier for you to decide to protest because risks are lower and the chance of achieving some outcome, uh, some result is higher. So... When there is some dramatic event, such as mobilization, is happening, then it's uh, you know that other people will take to the streets, so you take to the streets, so they see it as an, as an opportunity. But mobilization also brought to the streets other groups which we have not seen before. So, for instance, ordinary apolitical citizens, including in the regions, uh, which is quite rare, and these actions were quite spontaneous, uh, driven by the threat of mobilization. They, to an extent, consisted of women, because both because it's safer for women to protest as they won't be mobilized, and because their husbands and children were conscripted, so there's an immediate reason to protest. The problem is that it didn't turn into a mass protest movement, of course, partly because uh, these are apolitical people, right, so they have not protested before, There were no oppositional structures to coordinate them. They were all destroyed by the regime. And partly because the regime backed down and did not proceed with intensive mobilization in the regions where the protests were massive and were threatening the regime's stability. Since the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, we've also seen the widespread manipulation of information around the war, which is something Maxim has been looking at very closely for his research. In this monitoring study, we found that the bots and trolls are used in a quite selective way. We saw that a disproportionate amount of pro-war content was spread on social media platforms, which are already quite pro-war. So there are different platforms in Russia, like Telegram, which is more polarized, and, say, Adnaklasiki, which is much more older and pro-war social media platform. And pro-war content is distributed mainly on this platform, suggesting that there is certain strategy behind this. The regime is trying to reinforce attitudes of those people who are already pro-regime and pro-war, and they basically tailor their strategies for specific audiences. He's particularly interested in how propaganda is being adapted to meet new challenges. One of the recent innovations has been the use of what I call disinformation discourse and, uh, and fact-checkings. Basically, the idea is that you fact-check sources and claims of politicians and the media. And since the beginning of the war, state media in Russia have adopted disinformation discourse and fact-checking to deflect any accusations of wrongdoing. So they created all kinds of platforms and services which mimic Western fact-checking services and use them to debunk alternative information as disinformation. So basically, when they're accused of bombing civilians in Ukraine, they are saying, so look, there is evidence suggesting that it's a disinformation war against Russia. We actually bombed military objects and not civilians. 
And right now, uh, my colleagues and I were just uh, trying to design an experiment to understand how this disinformation discourse affects perception of information. So our hunch is that it allows people with pro-regime views to reinforce their beliefs, but its main effect on less politically involved people is basically confusion and uncertainty. When you deal with many contradictory claims in the information sphere, and you're not really politically savvy, then you just get confused. And this use of propaganda and misinformation causes political apathy, as Maxim explains. What I found in Russia is that it leads to a very superficial mode of information processing. So what I observed is that it's not like people blindly believe propaganda. That's not true. They buy some propaganda narratives, but they're also very critical towards the government. And they just do not connect the dots between different ideas. So, uh, for instance, a person can repeat propaganda cliches justifying the use of propaganda. We need more propaganda in order to unite people in the face of external threat. And uh, because they are primed by television, but when they mention personal experience and start discussing personal experience, he or she can say that we need less propaganda because I'm tired. It negatively affects my mental health. And these two contradictory ideas coexist in the head of this person, and there is no basically connecting the dots. So in this respect, propaganda feeds on political apathy, right? So people parrot the government's line, but they actually don't have elaborated opinions on, on this issue. He thinks political apathy, created by people feeling they cannot change things, plus the distant nature of the war, both played parts in limiting the protests compared to the kinds of demonstrations seen in China and Iran. In Iran, it was something very personal, something which affected like half of the country. And it's very much different from some distant conflict happening in some other countries. So it was much more personal. And in China as well, right? So we are talking about severe COVID restrictions when you have no life because you live in an apartment block where somebody always gets COVID and uh, you basically have, have no way out and you have no life. So it's much more personal than uh, some distant conflict happening in Ukraine. So for instance, they, of course, feel certain consequences of, of this, right? In terms of declining economy, rising prices, but it just pales in comparison to what Iranian women or Chinese people experience uh, in China or in Iran. So, of course, it's difficult to compare this regime because they are very dif different in terms of scale of repressions, the nature of uh, state apparatus, but in terms of this uh, immediate stimuli for, for protests, they are also very different and they are much more compelling, I'd say, in China and Iran than in Russia. In Iran, the wearing of the hijab is at the forefront of the current protests. It is part of a complicated history during which it has been banned, made optional, and then since 1983 enforced for women and girls over the age of seven. At the time of her arrest, Masajina Amini was wearing it just as many others do, which is why her death has created such a reaction, as Ahu explains. There is an image of her that circulated social media that is an image that was taken of her, a photo of her, just a few hours before her arrest. So it shows how she was dressed because it was a photo taken in public. And again, that is what really sparked the fury because she was dressed like millions of other young women inside Iran. Her hijab only showed a few strands of hair. She was wearing a hijab. 
she was loosely dressed to cover her body like everybody else has to in Iran. So her arbitrary detention really sparked the fury of ordinary people in Iran because of the fact that everybody could see someone they know in that photo of Mahsa, Gina and Mini. And the way she was dressed could be just about anyone's daughter, sister, friend. It really is so personal this time around that people are calling for an absolute end to the Islamic Republic. Ahu's research particularly focuses on social media, which she said has been crucial to the current protests. There is power in numbers and one of the slogans that we are seeing today, I mean this time around, is the one that says if you kill one of us, a thousand more of us will follow. And that really does speak to this unity, this collective action by Iranian society, fighting against this common enemy. And yeah, social media has been able to make people less afraid because of the fact that everybody has a backup, even though their own life is at imminent risk. They will leave a digital trace behind and so many of the young people who have been murdered by the Islamic Republic in these past four months, they were so happy, they were so hopeful, they were living ordinary lives and they had dreams and aspirations and we can only know about these because of the digital traces they have left behind. So really every aspect social media has been helpful to Iranian people and has at the same time been of very little help to the Islamic Republic because of seeing and hearing each individual's life that has been lost sparks more anger and more motivation to continue so that their deaths are not in vain. Social media has been uh, crucial in building solidarity among Iranians, both inside and outside the country as well, by highlighting the atrocities and the injustices that Iranians inside Iran are facing. And social media has been able to bring together Iranians from across the globe to form a community and come closer and work together in the ultimate goal of overthrowing the Islamic Republic as a whole. She said the diaspora has an important role to play in supporting those protesting in Iran and making people in other countries aware of what is happening. She highlighted how, in October 2022, 100,000 Iranians came together in Berlin to protest. The diaspora also have an important role to play in ensuring that the international media retains an interest in events in Iran and to question claims from the state, such as one saying the morality police would be shut down. Many international media outlets picked up on that as a, like a sign of improvement, but Iranians in the diaspora were quick to say, hang on a minute, this is just another tactic. The morality police might get shut, but that still doesn't heal any wounds, that still doesn't respond to the demands of Iranian people. And also, the morality police being shut doesn't stop the regime from finding other ways of harassing and arresting women for improper hijab. She said that as in previous uprisings, the response from the Islamic Republic has been brutal. Right now, as we are speaking, the figures that I have, over 20,000 people have been arrested. 
over 500 people have been killed. We have just seen another round of executions, so bringing the total to four executions. And more than 100 people are facing imminent risk of being executed. Among the over 500 people that have been killed by security forces, 70 children are among those. But what effects have these actions had? The Islamic Republic has tried as hard as it can to quell the protests and to scare people from continuing. They have not been able to because people are still on the streets. People are still finding ways to show their dissent, to you know, continue this revolution and not let all these deaths go in vain. In China, Jane said it's not yet clear what impact social media is having on mobilising protests. But in the recent demonstrations, it was used to document activity. There was one very, very prominent Twitter poster who goes by the name of Li Laoshe Bushi Ni Laoshe. This particular Twitter poster was receiving thousands and thousands of clips, which he was then posting on Twitter for international audiences to see, including members, of course, of the Chinese diaspora, who were then circulating those clips. And many of those clips were making it back into China. So the censorship of social media can be quite strict. A lot of those clips would have been taken down by government censorship, but they were coming back into the country faster than the government censors could take them down. So that may have been one reason which um, made the protest so widespread because people were, well, some people, some groups who do have access to social media were basically watching it happen all around them. I asked her what we've learned from the 1989 Tiananmen Square demonstrations about the dangers of making assumptions about the motivations of those taking to the streets. The 1989 protests, there was quite a strong narrative in uh, the Western media, certainly, for example, in the US and UK, that this was very much a student-led protest and people were demanding liberal democracy of the kind that we have in Europe and the US. But the fact is, later research has shown that it was a far more complicated protest than that, that there were many different strands in it, and these strands had been kind of missed by the Western media. So, for example, there were large numbers of workers within these protests and or people from uh, lower income households. And they've been having a very difficult time because of the market reforms that had been taking place throughout the 1980s. So, for example, they had much less job security than they'd had before. People used to have a job for life, what was called the iron rice bowl during the Mao period um, and up until the late 70s. But they've been starting to be moved on to temporary employment contracts, which in a lot of ways brings a lot of challenges that, of course, they wouldn't have had to face before. At the same time, again, due to the market reforms, there was a, a lot of inflation. Again, people are seeing their living standards being impacted by this. At the same time, there are reforms to state-owned enterprises going on, which involve all kinds of corruption, forms of asset stripping. So they're seeing corrupt bosses getting rich while their lives are getting more difficult. And so a lot of that context was behind these protests. And what many people were wanting was not liberal democracy, which tends to be focused on voting in multi-party elections and an emphasis on private property. That's a certain kind of democracy that we have over here, but more socialist kinds of democracies, which involve more social protections from the market reforms that were taking place. 
She said reporting of the November protests last year showed that lessons had not been learned. What we got, I think, from a lot of the coverage was that this is people as one mass group, as if all people are experiencing the lockdowns in the same way, with a particular focus on students and demands for democracy very front and centre. We don't know that people were all demanding democracy. And even if they were, we don't know what kind of democracy that would be. So in that sense, I think there were similarities in the reporting with the 1989 movement. And some of the aspects of the reporting were misleading in similar kinds of ways. So do we have any evidence about what changes to their society ordinary people in China would want? I think everybody wants control over their lives. I think we have to be very careful what we mean by democracy because there are many different forms of it. So I think there are two things to be careful of here. One is the assumption that people in China want the same kind of government that we've got. I don't think that's necessarily true at all. I'm sure some do. Uh, It's not true across the board. But secondly, to say that Chinese people are happy with an authoritarian government because they value stability and order more than we do. And there is a, a very nasty underlying assumption that you occasionally hear, which is that somehow people in socialist societies or even something about Chinese Confucian culture means that people like an authoritarian strong state where they're told what to do. That's obviously nonsense as well. Jane said we don't really know how popular the current leader, Xi Jinping, really is among Chinese citizens, although there is much speculation about it. A couple of things that we have seen recently. So around the time of the very important 20th Party Congress, which was a top level government meeting which took place in October, we did see a very high profile protest, which was very unusual. It was a man holding a banner over a road bridge in Beijing which, amongst other things, called for the end of the Xi Jinping regime. That was extremely unusual. There was some discussion around that at the time as to whether or not that was a symptom of wider dissatisfaction with Xi Jinping, because it is simply so unusual to see people publicly call or publicly criticise or call for the stepping down of Xi Jinping. The next month, we saw widespread protests all across China as a result of the lockdowns with different groups of people protesting. But amongst those protesters, there was a group in Shanghai of people, again, very prominently and loudly calling for Xi Jinping to step down. And again, that was so noticeable because it was extremely unusual. That doesn't mean that calls for Xi Jinping to step down are widespread. They've been particularly high profile. So that may be a symptom of something more going on beneath the surface. But again, we don't really know. So what about in Russia? What do people think of Putin? Maxim describes it as a very messy picture, as it's hard to determine if people are answering polls accurately and if those who participate truly represent all sections of society. So I'd say that there are minorities of those who strongly support or oppose Putin based on certain political or ideological reasons. And there can be very different logic underlying their, their views. Some people support Putin because they think he has restored Russia's greatness, blah, 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 Putin's regime narrative. Other people just don't like him but support him because Russia is at war, so my country right or wrong. And then there is a, this uh, much larger group in between. Uh, these people have no clear opinions, some people do not follow politics. Some of these people believe that they can't fully comprehend political processes, they abstain from uh, formulating opinions. Yeah, some people say that they support Putin because it feels like a dominant social norm and so on and so on. He pointed to research by the Levada Centre, which suggests that since 2014, 
more Russians prioritise economic prosperity for their country than for it to be a great power. There are also many who are concerned about arbitrary powers or greater repressions. Of course, there is a radical minority who wants a strong leader, authoritarian rule, and there is a widespread imperial sentiment. But on average, I'd say that Russians want economically prosperous life more than war and repressions and a strong leader and so on. I also asked him if the war in Ukraine has changed Putin's power and authority. There is this famous political scientist, uh, Adam Shevorsky, who once wrote that authoritarian equilibrium rests on uh, fear, lies, or economic prosperity. So this pretty much accurately describes the evolution of Putin's regime in 2000s. Putin's power was to a significant degree based on the fact that he exploited rising oil prices uh, and managed to convince both elites and citizens that he can deliver material benefits. In 2010s, uh, material conditions have worsened, both due to economic crisis and uh, confrontation with the West, uh, sanctions, and the balance shifted towards fear, so repressions, and lies, propaganda. And after the beginning of the invasion, obviously the economic foundation of the regime has been uh, has shaken. Now it's much more violent dictatorship, and violence is an efficient tool to control elites and citizens in the, in the short run. It's not very efficient in the long run, because somebody will always be dissatisfied making the system vulnerable. So the regime based on economic prosperity and popularity is much more stable uh, in the sense Putin's authority as something which allows you to command people, to convince people, because convince people to obey, this authority has weakened. So what do our experts see for the future? Will we see significant changes because of the public protests? Maxim is reluctant to make predictions of whether Putin will retain power, especially given the unique situation Russia is currently in. But looking at comparative data, we know that there are certain general patterns. So, for instance, most regime changes or revolutions or things like that, they take the form of palace coups, right? So there is a fraction of elites disposing of a leader. And there are also authoritarian governments toppled by popular mobilization. But even in this case, there is always some elite group within the government backing protesters. So all orange revolutions in the post-Soviet countries, they follow this pattern. And following this logic, I'd say that it's reasonable, reasonable to assume that uh, you need some kind of tensions between elites. And the problem with Russian elites uh, is that there are no cohesive fractions, right? So they're all co-opted individually. He said a Russian defeat in Ukraine would create turbulence, as could further economic downturn. But as he pointed out, the economy has stabilised, despite suggestions early on in the war that it could collapse. Another moment of turbulence would be around Putin's successor. Transfer of power is always surrounded by tensions, revolts, coups, because you have no clear rules of what rules and how and what who gets power. Putin is not young, right? So he's not exactly healthy. And uh, the more elites feel that we need to elect a new leader at some point, the more tensions that can generate. So I refuse to make any predictions after many predictions this year were wrong. But my impression is that uh, it will last, the regime itself it will last probably for years, not decades. That's my impression. The problem, however, is that one authoritarian regime, it often gives birth to another authoritarian regime. So it might be not so cruel or willing to wage wars, right? But democratization is a very long and painful process. And if, even if we assume the more, uh, that more liberal democratic forces take control of Russia, they will still need to rebuild everything, political institutions, economy, corruption, 
it's possible, right? So it's not impossible, but it's a long, painful process. And uh, my impression is that uh, after Putin's authoritarian regime, there will be another authoritarian regime, probably more peaceful and less violent, but still. Jane said it is difficult to predict what the November protests will lead to. What we are likely to see is increased levels of surveillance on those who took part in the protest. Many of them have been arrested. The extent to which we're going to see rising levels of oppression across the board, that isn't clear. Various people have said we're likely to see higher levels of oppression, and some have said, well, actually, it's more likely that the state is going to ease off now because they can see what happens when they push things too far. So again, I think we're just going to have to watch and see what happens. She highlighted how, as well as the protests over COVID restrictions, there was also social discontent because of attempts to restructure the Chinese economy. The introduction of new red lines to reduce its reliance on huge amounts of debt affected not just those who made a lot of money in the property sector, but also those trying to get on the housing ladder. This led to some young middle-class people not paying their mortgages. The policies were rolled back, and it's not yet clear if this is a change of course or just a temporary measure while things are stabilised. In Iran, Ahu is certain that the protests there have now reached such levels that we will see change. It doesn't mean that the state will not tighten its grip, because as we are seeing, it has tightened its grip and it will continue to do so. We are going to see a lot more, unfortunately, I think, brutality from the state. But these are desperate attempts for an old clerical regime to stay in power. Change is coming, but unfortunately there is a heavy price that is being paid at the moment. And the only thing that is concerning is how much longer, how many more deaths, how many more people will have to suffer until this change comes. People are not going to back down. The demand really this time is for revolution and they really will not stop before they achieve it. Protests that we are seeing today have already affected change inside Iran in the sense that no one believes that we are ever going back to the way things were prior to Masa Jinamini's death. And so the seed of revolution has already been planted and it's growing. It's only a matter of time for change to actually happen. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series. 